We'll go ahead and grab your Bibles, turn to John chapter 5, John 5, and as we return to our study of the miracles of Jesus in the Gospel of John, uh, again to reiterate, there is no word miracle in John, there is only the word signs, and this is certainly one of those signs, and those signs of course point us to the identity of who Jesus is. John chapter 5. We want to read the first 18 verses. So if you will, stand with me out of reverence for for God's holy word. The evangelist writes under the Holy Spirit, beginning verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. There is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roof colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, while, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, as always, when we open up our, uh, your word together, as a body of believers, we ask that you would do a miraculous work. You would open our hearts that we would receive your word and our mind that we would understand it our eyes that we would see your glory, the glory of of the kingdom of God, and our ears that we would hear and heed your word, our mouth that we would speak the hope of Jesus that is within us, that has been given to us, and our hands and our feet that we would be be people of holiness and obedience. Lord, this is your work, and we ask that you would be so kind as to do it. Uh, we, We are but instruments of mercy. Would you be so kind? May I decrease so you can increase. In the name of your son we pray. Amen. Seated. If you've been following with us in our study of John, even with our highlights of miracles, you, you can probably get an idea of, of what has happened in the first four chapters, right? Chapter 1 is very introductory. We're introduced to all the characters, the disciples, John the Baptist, Jesus, who he is, what he came to do, all of that sort of stuff. In chapter 2, we get the first sign, turn the water into wine, sets the stage of what it is that we were looking for, that Christ has come to, 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 to turn water to wine, to, 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 to bring life from death, right? He, he has come to do the impossible, the, the meaning of the cross and, and the work that Jesus has. In chapters 3 and 4, we, we, we have two encounters. First of all, Jesus runs into uh, or meets a, uh, a um, well-educated uh, religious Pharisee. A man who is in the dark, and Jesus has that encounter with him. The climax is with John 3.16. God so loved the world, he gave his only son. 
And in the next chapter, Jesus meets another person. This person, too, is in the spiritual darkness and is a woman by the well. And uh, Jesus demonstrates to her that she is thirsty. Yet what she thirsts for is more than what a mere well can, can provide. What she needs is something deeper, spiritual water. So just as Jesus offered to baptize in spirit and water, so too he offers to provide water to the woman at the well. And she responds by believing and goes out and tells everyone. And people marvel at this man. So if you've been following the story so far in John, you would think that everywhere Jesus goes, the people who follow him, the people who hear him, the people who meet him, love Jesus. Uh, they, they are enraptured with him. They are amazed by him. His charisma, his, his way of articulating things, his teaching with authority. Jesus is unique. And how can anyone not love Jesus? But when you come to chapter 5, all of that changes dramatically. In fact, John has warned us it was going to change dramatically. In chapter 1, verse 9, so right here at the beginning of his gospel, John warns us, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So then we are, we've been warned that, yes, there will be those who will come to Christ and believe in his message, and that is the result of the will of God. But then there are others who follow the will of the flesh who will reject him. And starting in chapter 5 is a series of such rejections. In fact, the next sign we'll see, Lord willing, next week, will be a major rejection by some of his closest followers. Let's start here, verses 1 to 4, with the setting of the story. Right, it, Much like Jesus will experience in the following chapters of John, um, Christianity often has comes under criticism for claims that the Bible lacks historicity. And here you see a story about Jesus encountering a man by a pool called Bethesda in Aramaic. And uh, Jesus heals this man. And a lot of critics will come and say, well, that's a cute story. It never happened. And the reason we know it never happened is because this pool has never been found. Now, let me just pause there and say, just because archaeologists hasn't found something doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Right? I mean, that's, think about it. If, if you lose anything... A contact or something. I'll give you an example of this. A few weeks ago, I was at the house by myself, um, and uh, I couldn't find my phone. Many of you all know I am deaf in one ear, and that means that I have no sense of direction. So you can call my phone. I still don't know where it's coming from, right? And I almost have to really just sort of do this thing. Problem is, my phone was on vibrate, right? So, so half the time when I was calling, if it was in the wrong room, I didn't hear the phone. Just because I couldn't find my phone... Didn't mean it, it, it didn't exist. The issue was, 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 was that I couldn't find it, right? And so the claim for, for a long time was, well, we can reject the historicity of the Bible, or at least of this narrative, because Jesus couldn't have healed this man because such a pool did not exist. And for decades, and scholars, uh, for decades scholars and experts alike pointed out uh, this point. Archaeologists couldn't find it. It's not mentioned in any written record. Uh, therefore, it did not exist. John simply made it up. The problem was is that we had found it, 
over 100 years ago. We found it in the late 19th century, but it took 100 years to verify exactly what it was. We'll see something similar with this in John chapter 9 with the pool at Siloam. We have found it too, I believe. But we actually have found this pool. And, and what we found gives us some real insight into the setting of this miracle. The pool is north of the Temple Mount. And such pools were common throughout the, the Roman world, and they inherited really from the Greek world. The Greeks created a cult around a pagan god of healing. I, I could tell you its name, but I can't pronounce it. Its symbol, I believe, is the common symbol of the snake uh, that you see like on ambulances and whatnot. It comes from this, this Greek god. Don't quote me on that, uh, but I'm pretty sure that's the case. I've seen the name a thousand times. I can't pronounce it, and I've stopped trying. See? There you go. But it is a pagan god of healing. And as such, they would build various healing sites uh, across the Greek Empire, these centers that would then invite the sick and the disabled, and they would congregate themselves at these pagan shrines and around these pools, and they would drink from its water, bathe in its water, or whatever it, it, it may be, uh, in a sort of worship of these pagan gods, right? These pagan gods, this pagan god of healing, would bring healing to them. Often they would even sleep near such pools and shrines in the temples, often laying on mats in the inner sanctum. So you were in constant act of worship, waiting for this pagan god to heal you. Now, they slept. One of the reasons they, they slept, in addition to waiting, was because they believed that if they slept in the inner sanctum of these Greek uh, shrines, the pagan gods, these gods of healings, would promise to visit them in a dream and explain what they needed to do in order to be healed. Now, the Romans continued these practices. They usually built them around sacred springs with shallow pools. And so you would have the sick praying, chanting, and fasting in the waters, hoping that the gods would stir the waters. In fact, if you have a King James or other translation, you may have, at least in the footnote, a, 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 it's a manuscript issue, referencing an angel would come down and stir the waters. What you have there is a, a, a Judaizing of this pagan myth, that, that the gods would come, stir the waters, or visit you in the dream, and explain to you what it is that was supposed to happen. So, so perhaps it was believed that the same sort of thing would happen here in Jerusalem, but, but because they're not pagans, they would turn it into some sort of Jewish idea. An angel would come, stir the water, and if you jumped in fast enough, you could then be healed. And from what we can tell, this pool was similar in nature, but it was either equally pagan or, what I think is more likely, it was pagan in origin. So the story, again, of the angel is likely a Jewish reinterpretation of the healing centers. Regardless, one can imagine what this pool would have been like once the waters begin to stir, right? Can, can you imagine, right? The waters begin to bubble, the waters begin to stir, and what you have is a lot of sick people, a lot of hurt people, a lot of people who have been suffering for a long time cannonball to the best of their ability in hopes of healing, Right? I mean, think about it. If you really believed, if you really believed this is the only way you can get there, what would stand in your way? Absolutely nothing. The nicest people in this world you'll ever meet will push and grab and pull to get something they really have to have. 
I know this because I used to work in Christian retail, right? <laughs> you know, I remember uh, on Black Friday, I had to work there, you know, for, uh, to, to get my way into heaven. And, and um, this one Black Friday, we were offering bread baskets that said bread of life or something spiritual so you would pay extra dollars for it. And for like $5, they were, they were door busters, right? If you came from between 6 a.m. and 10 a.m., whatever it was, uh, you would get these, these cheaply made uh, bread baskets for $5, right? And anything you put in that basket, you get 20%. I don't know what it was. Well, we sold out of them in like 10 minutes, right? Baskets, ladies, you, you have baskets. You don't need another one, right? This <laughs> is so the whole time I'm a teenager. Like, these, all these people have to have baskets. Surely they do. I will carve bread of life on the side of their longer burger basket if it helps them. Anyway, so, so they ran out. And so as people came in with their coupon, they'd say, I like my basket now. Sorry, man, we sold out 30 minutes ago, right? Well, one lady had taken her basket and she, she, she laid it down uh, to grab a bunch of other stuff. And this other lady, and I'm standing right there, everyone saw exactly what she did. She temporarily laid it down to use her two hands for other stuff. This lady comes up, looks at me and says, you think I can have that one now? The bread basket. $5 bread. Let me give you a little hint in retail. If we charge you $5 for a bread basket, we paid $2.50 for that bread basket. It ain't worth $2.50. It's amazing. People would just claw and, 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 and get every little sale that they could do. How much more so when it comes to, 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 to your own health? You're willing to spend any dollar, go in any distance, do whatever it takes. And if you really believe that when the water begins to stir, that if you just jump in, you will be safe. You will be healed. So you see here the blind, the lame, the paralyzed would clamor for a chance of healing. And you think about who are the sort of people coming here. We have found this pool and it can go as deep as like 30 feet, I believe I read. Do you really want someone who's blind doing that? Do you really want someone who is paralyzed doing that? And do you want the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed fighting each other to get into the pool with, that, with, with disregard for anyone else's health or benefit? It's a madhouse you have here. No wonder then the man is frustrated. His opportunities are rare and his limitations make them rarer. So what we have is Jesus entering a place where superstition and false hope runs rampant. And he encounters a man in desperate need of healing, but cannot find it. Little does he know, the healing he sought was found not in the pool, but he used John's language in living water. See, in chapter 4, the woman comes to the well. In chapter 5, we meet a man who has come to a pool. That's the setting. In verses 5 to 9, we, we have the Sabbath. In verse 5, he, he, he arrives and meets a man who, who is ill here. It says, one man was there who had been invalid for 38 years. Now, to be clear, it does not say he waited at the pool for 38 years. Could have. What it says is he has suffered for 38 years. Now, I am 37 years old. This man has suffered since 1983. All right. that's, that's a long time to suffer. Or I guess 1984, if, if, if it started in January of 84. But like the woman with the hemorrhage of blood we saw this morning, his illness is chronic and without cure. And instead of being content with his suffering, he continued to seek relief. Now notice the, what happens here in verse 6. Jesus saw him lying there and knew he had already been there a long time. There's omniscience there. He said to him, 
Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? Now, the answer to that question is pretty simple, right? Right? I mean, uh, yes. Yes, I, I, want, I want to be healed. Right? That, that's, that's, that's true for, for, for a good lot of us, right? Jesus rises at the pool, entire crowd can be found. And yet, notice here, Jesus approaches a single man. Again, it's a whole crowd of a lot of sick people. A hospital, if you can imagine. He approaches one sick man. Why is that? That's that's the question that really haunts me with this text. Why this man and not the guy next to him? Or the three people over here within earshot of him? That really is the mystery and the beauty of the gospel, isn't it? Why is it that one of the thieves embraced Christ but not both? Rises, as we see in the story of Luke, ten lepers were healed but only one showed gratitude. The real question shouldn't be why him and not the others, but the real question is why me and not others? Why would God show the similar grace to me? I'm not entitled to it. It is rather a genuine gift. But there's that question haunting the text, isn't it? Do you want to feel better? And on the surface, it's an odd question. Of course he wants to get well. Who, who wouldn't want to get well? But I've been in ministry long enough and just lived long enough to know there's plenty of people in this world don't want to feel better. They don't want to be better. They, want to, they don't want to live a, 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 a better life, right? They, they don't. Um, you and I both know that most of the world's problems could be resolved in an instant. Can I, can I solve all your marriage problems right now? Right, right here? I'm going to charge you extra after this, okay? And I'll put it in the red jar back here, okay? Here it is, all right? Stop it. Okay, we're done. We're done, all right? We just solved it right there, all right? Stop screaming. Stop thinking you're the center of the universe, right? Love your spouse as Christ loved the church. Stop acting up. Try to try humility every once in a while. It'll fit if you try hard enough, right? Try it. It's amazing, right? Now, you know this. I know this. But tonight before you go to bed, you're going to say something and it's going to start another fight with your spouse. Why do we do this? Do we really want to fix all the world's problems? You can think of this politically, economically, socially, culturally. We could fix the majority of problems. In fact, right now, if every child is born in a household with a loving husband and wife, a mother and father, that child, we know, statistically, has a better chance of making it in life. We know that. Are we going to promote it? No. Well, that's okay for other people. My kid's different, right? You know, Right? We know that there are simple solutions to life's problems. The far majority of them can, can be resolved. You want to end war? Here, here it is. Stop fighting. <laughs> Boom, right there fixed. We know this, right? We know this. But we don't want these things. If we chose love, patience, grace, moral integrity, most of our problems will go away. But why don't we choose this better way? I mean, I continue to meet people who they know they're in a cycle of behavior that continues to make things worse. They choose dangerous men. They refuse to address their anger, their bitterness, their lust. They love drama and, and uh, love to stir it. In fact, oftentimes, it's, it's the sympathy we get from our suffering the saddest of victim we get from our circumstances. We enjoy it too much to give up our real problems, right, and to resolve them. So on the surface, it's an insulting question. 
you wouldn't go to the hospital right now and say, hey, how many of you all by show of hands would like to feel better today? Anyone? Anyone? Bueller? Bueller? That would be an insulting question. But the truth is, most people, when it comes to their daily lives, we don't want to be better. We want to be vindicated. Are you sure you want to be healed? Now, the man's answer for his part and to his credit is very clear in verse 7. Sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Notice the chaos there. So the answer is yes. That's why I'm here. In case you didn't notice, this is the place to be. It's a healing shrine. And if all, if all, all I have to do is get into that water, but people keep getting in my way, it's not fair. But the man is confessing, isn't he, that he cannot heal himself. He's too weak, too alone to enter the pool when the moment arrives. So when the moment arrives and he fails to enter the pool, he has to wait again. And who knows how long that will be. So notice Jesus' command there in verse 8. Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed, and walk. Now, you've read the Bible enough, you read it, you don't even pause to think about what he's saying, right? It's insulting, isn't it? Before he was president former vice president, now president of the United States. I'm not making a political statement here, just telling a story. Because if I didn't say his name, you're going to Google it, find it anyways. But President Joe Biden, before he was president, introduced a Missouri state senator by the name of Chuck Graham. You see, y'all remember this? Remember what he did? He, he was at this campaign rally, right? And he says, stand up, Chuck, stand up for everybody to see you. There's a problem with Chuck. He's in a wheelchair. So, so, the, so the now president I say says, stand up, Chuck. Everybody wants to see you. He goes, oh, well, you're making everyone else stand up for you, Chuck. Everybody stand up for Chuck, right? It's a gaffe, right? Every politician does it. Everyone does it. But telling, telling an ill man, an invalid, to get up and go home is like telling a blind man to pick out the paint color for the master bedroom. It's an insult. That's precisely what Jesus does here. But he doesn't receive it that way. At once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. This is much like the royal official we saw last week in the previous story who was healed. This is just like turning water into wine. What was broken has now been restored. What was lost has now been found. What was missing has been created. It's the same story over and over again. It's an act of creation. The man is healed instantly. He leaves behind the pool. And then we get warned there in verse 9, don't we? The day was the Sabbath. Cue the dark music. Here it comes. And that leads us to verse 10 to 18, the scribes. One of the greatest mysteries of religion is how doing the right thing can so often be viewed as the wrong thing. Verse 10, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, why, it is the Sabbath. How dareth thee feel better on the Sabbath? Got to wait another day. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Now, they, they associate taking up your bed and walking. You can only take so many steps per day, among other things. They're very... Uh, well-regulated uh, Sabbath. So they see him walking and, and picking up his mat. Therefore, he's working. And that is where they are in sense. 
But they then discover, well, he was told to break the Sabbath by a supposed Jewish rabbi who healed him on the Sabbath. That is a more egregious act, right? Because his sin made someone else sin. So now we've got to go with the chief sinner here. So Jesus is criticized, as he is throughout the, the, the Gospels, for healing a sick man simply because of the day in which he chose to do it. Now, you and I get this, right? If, if you see someone and you have the power within you to heal them, and you say, man, I'd love to help you out. I just, can you wait 24 hours to be more convenient for God? Right? I mean, you and I hear that, we, we think it's bizarre. But I've been in Baptist life long enough to know we got some weird stuff going on up in here, right? We have some weird, weird traditions that, that we hold very vital. But what we see here is tribalism. Tribalism doesn't care about what is best for you. Tribalism cares what is best for the herd. And in, in, if we want to control people, we have to hold fast to these rules and regulations. We don't care if your life is better. We don't care if you are happier or the Lord has blessed you. Just don't break free from, from these regulations. And that does beg the question when it comes to, to tribalism, because we are becoming a more tribal culture. Can you genuinely rejoice when other people are blessed, even if those people are those whom you have strong disagreements with them? If you can't, the problem lies with you. If the Lord blesses someone with relationships, family, financial blessings, whatever it might be, can you honestly celebrate them, celebrate their accomplishments, celebrate the Lord blessing them without a hint of bitterness or envy? Surely, surely the people of God can. Well, nevertheless, what do you get in verse 11 through 13? It's bizarre to read it, but it's typical of John. Is A lot of the people he, he heals don't know who he is initially, and that sets up a later uh, a meeting. A good example of this is in John chapter 9. We'll get to it in a few weeks. And John 9 is healing the blind man. You remember Jesus heals him, but because he's blind, he never saw the guy that healed him. So he has to come back and encounter Jesus again. This man's no different. It's a very crowded place. Jesus heals him, sneaks off. And so he didn't get the man's name, nor did he grab his business card. So when he's asked, well, who's this dude that did this? He's like, well, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I'll run into him. I'll let, let you know. He's a bearded man from the Middle East. And they're all looking around like, well, we're all bearded men from the Middle East, right? That didn't help us, okay? So, so th that's what you have going on there, verses 11 uh, to, to 13. Um, and not to mention, the only thing the man cared is he was healed by Jesus. He didn't care about any of that other stuff. And he didn't charge his insurance. Verse 14 is the most controversial verse of the passage. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, to be clear, I don't think he's saying you might lose your salvation. I don't think that's the case at all. Nor is he suggesting that sin and sickness are equated. That is made very clear at the beginning of John chapter 9. Rather, I think Jesus is suggesting two things. First of all, he is warning him of the eternal dangers of sin. In this scenario, the man is still unreconciled with God, and that is a fate far worse than nearly 40 years of sickness. Likewise, I think Jesus is calling him to repentance. Those who encounter Christ taste holiness and want more. It is inconsistent to be both a confessing Christian and an open sinner. Sin no more is the command of every repentant sinner. 
Regardless, we, we see that the man in verse 15 to 17 reports that it was Jesus, and the unfolding drama will ultimately lead to the cross. This, this little event, Jesus healing on the Sabbath in John's gospel. Now, there's more events to come, but this is the genesis in John's gospel. This is where it begins to unfold, leading to the cross. It's amazing, isn't it, how a good thing can be perceived as a bad thing? But what matters most in those situations, whenever we might be criticized for something, is is to live a life with a clear conscience and to choose a clear conscience over popularity or the approval of others. But you'll notice verse 18 is the real motive of the passage, and this is really where we need to spend our time. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Now, now, remember, we've, we've seen everything's just been going great with Jesus. He heal, he's healing people. People seem to like him. Uh, he hasn't had a long teaching section yet. That's about to start in verse 19 of chapter 5. But nevertheless, people seem to buy into what he is saying and teaching and, and, and doing. And, right? Everything's just so positive. Now, all of a sudden, they want him dead. Just like that. They want him dead. Here's the real reason they were wanting him dead, John tells us. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath. I mean, yeah, okay. They didn't like that. But he was calling himself God. He was calling God his father, making himself equal with God. That's the real reason. Did you catch that? Because on the surface, he never really does that, does he? He was a man on the Sabbath. But as the story unfolds, we see that there's something deeper going on there. The synoptics tells Jesus will announce, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the creator of the Sabbath. I am the definition of rest itself. I am God, the creator who gives rest. So, so breaking the Sabbath when you're the Lord over is a very serious crime. If you're not really the Lord over the Sabbath, then Jesus claimed it for himself. You see, he made himself equal to the Father. He made himself equal to God. So what we were to get from this sign is the conclusion we should have already made from the previous signs. Jesus is the creator redeemer who turns water into wine, who makes the blind see, causes us to be born again, living water. Now notice their complaint was regarding the potential rule-breaking but the truth ran deeper. Can we just pause there and add a footnote? This is true across the board. Most disagreements you have with someone are usually a waste of your time because you'll spend most of your time arguing over surface level stuff. Somebody said something. Someone responded the wrong way. Can we talk about this email? Whatever it might be. When reality is, the real disagreement, the real division is over something much deeper. And the challenge is, how can we bypass these these little drama stuff and get right down to the heart of it? And so what John does for us, he says, don't think their beef is over the Sabbath. Their beef is over who Jesus says he is. And if Jesus is that, really that, what does that say about me? I'm a sick man by the pool, and, and, and Jesus may pass over me. And Jesus, when he comes, may say, sin no more. That's the problem. That's the problem that we have here. 
In fact, Jesus has warned us of this already. If we were to go back to John chapter 3 in his conversation with Nicodemus, and Jesus says, this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Here's the thing, right? Light runs all the way through John's gospel, starting in John chapter 1. It'll end with the resurrection with Jesus being raised at dawn, right? Light all over. I, I wish I could, I could trace that. We're doing it over the Capitol each week. But Jesus says light has two purposes, the first purpose is to illuminate, right? Think about it. If all the lights went off here right now, every single one of us with a cell phone would pull it out and we'd say, don't worry, we can make it out of here safely. I have light to illuminate the path. That's why you have headlights on your car. It's why we have adult night lights outside on the streets so that you can find your way through the darkness. It's the beauty of lights. It pierces through darkness. The other purpose of light is to expose. It's why you have security lights at your house so that whenever it's triggered, a light comes on and, and, and people begin to freak out. It's why that if you're over in, in an alley and you're doing something illegal and a cop car pulls up and with headlights on, you dash because what you want is to stay hidden. And what light does, it exposes you. So John has been pairing us for this moment. For some, light will illuminate. And when he says, sin no more, we go and we sin no more. For others, the light will expose. And the only way to get rid of light is to snuff it out. So these scribes choose to destroy lights. You see, people don't normally reject Jesus on historic grounds. Did it exist? Did a cross really happen? Was he really raised from the dead? There are some. But I've found you could be the best apologi apologist in the world. Prove without a, without a doubt Christ risen from the dead. And people will still reject. They don't typically reject on scientific grounds. Did a virgin birth really happen? Did the sun stand still? That God really create everything. They don't really reject Jesus on theological grounds. Is it possible for a man born of a virgin to be the son of God and yet fully man nonetheless, the incarnated one? No, they usually reject Jesus on authoritative grounds. They're okay with Jesus as a buddy. We're not okay with Jesus as Lord. And when the light shines, we will either father its, follow its path, or we will feel exposed and seek to destroy it. I heard an evangelist once tell a story that he was sharing the gospel with someone. And he thought they were really receptive to the gospel as he was unfolding it. Near the end, the, the, the person responded, if everything you're telling me is true, then I've got to change everything. I don't want to do that. By which the man understood, they did understand everything he had said. Isn't that the hard part of faith? For some, faith comes easy, but the obedience, not so much. 
For others, it's the obedience that comes easy. It's the faith that is the hard part. I've been watching a series lately, and it's, it's, a, it's of England back in the days of the monarchy, like the real monarchy. I don't even know what the queen does now. And there's a supporter there, and, and she says, well, everything I've ever done for the king is for the will of God. It's all I ever wanted was, was to do the will of God. At which her critic responds, it's funny how the will of God always matches your own. I find the, true, the same is still true today, isn't it? It's not a Jesus who is Lord over all. Because we don't want a Jesus who is Lord over me. So how is it anyone could reject Christ? It's because the water hasn't been turned to wine yet. Isn't that the good news of the gospel? That Christ is the one who does and can turn such water into wine? Including the heart of a rebellious sinner. So I don't know where you are or where your neighbors are or where anyone else in the church is. But when the line shines, how do you respond? Let's pray.